Chapter Eleven of Women on the American Frontier. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Women on the American Frontier by William W. Fowler. Chapter Eleven. Pathetic Passages of Pioneer Life. A hundred ills brood over the cabin in the wilderness. Some are ever present. Others lie in wait and start forth at intervals. Labor, solitude, fear. These are the companions of women on the border. To these come other visitants. Weariness, and that longing, yearning, pining of the heart, which the Germans so beautifully term Zenzucht. Hunger, vigils, bodily pain and sickness, the biting cold, the drenching storm, the fierce heat, with savage eyes of man and beast glaring from the thicket. Then sorrow takes bodily shape and enters the house. Loved ones are borne away. The child, or the father, or saddest of all, the mother. The long struggle is over, and the devoted woman of the household lays her wasted form beneath the grassy sod of the cabin yard. Bereavement is hard to bear, in even the houses where comfort, ease, and luxury surround the occupants, where friends and kinsfolk crowd to pour out sympathy and consolation. But what must it be in the rude cabin on the lonely border? The grave hollowed out in the hard soil of the little enclosure, the rough shell coffin hewn with tears from the forest tree, the sorrowing household ranged in silence beside the form which will gladden the loneliness of that stricken family no longer, and then the mourners turn away and go back to their homely toils. If from the time of the landing we could recall the long procession of the actors and the events of border life, and pass them before the eye in one great moving panorama, how sombre would be the colors of that picture! All along the grand march, what scenes of captivity, suffering, bereavement, sorrow, and in these scenes, woman the most prominent figure, for she was the constant actress in this great drama of woe. The carrying away and the return of captives in war has furnished themes by which poets and artists in all ages have moved the heart of man. The breaking up of homes, the violent separations of those who are kindred by blood, and the sundering forever of family ties were ordinary and everyday incidents in the border wars of our country. But the frequency of such occurrences does not detract from the mournful interest with which they are always fraught. At the close of the old French and Indian War, Colonel Henry Bouquet stipulated with the Indian tribes on the Ohio frontier as one of the conditions of peace that they should restore all the captives which they had taken. This was agreed to, and on his return march he was met by a great company of settlers in search of their lost relatives. Husbands found their wives and parents their children, from whom they had been separated for years. Women frantic between hope and fear were running hither and thither, looking piercingly into the face of every child to find their own, which perhaps had died and then such shrieks of agony. Some of the little captives shrank from their own forgotten mothers, and hid in terror in the blankets of the squaws that had adopted them. Some that had been taken away young had grown up and married Indian husbands or Indian wives, and now stood utterly bewildered with conflicting emotions. A young Virginian had found his wife, but his little boy, not two years old when captured, had been torn from her, and had been carried off, no one knew whither. One day a warrior came in, leading a child. No one seemed to own it, 
but soon the mother knew her offspring and screaming with joy folded her son to her bosom an old woman had lost her granddaughter in the french war nine years before all her other relatives had died under the knife searching with trembling eagerness in each face she at last recognized the altered features of her child but the girl had forgotten her native language returned no answer and made no sign the old woman groaned wept and complained bitterly that the daughter she had so often sung to sleep on her knees had forgotten her in her old age soldiers and officers were alike overcome sing whispered bouquet sing the song you used to sing as the low trembling tones began to ascend the wild girl gave one sudden start then listening for a moment longer her frame shaking like an ague she burst into a passionate flood of tears that was sufficient she was the lost child all else had been effaced from her memory but the music of the nursery song during her captivity she had heard it in her dreams another story of the same character is that of francis slocum the lost child of wyoming which though perhaps familiar to some of our readers will bear repeating in the time of the revolution the house of mr slocum in the wyoming valley was attacked by a party of delawares the inmates of the house at the moment of the surprise were mrs slocum and four young children the eldest of whom was a son aged thirteen the second a daughter aged nine the third francis slocum aged five and a little son aged two and a half the girl aged nine years old appears to have had the most presence of mind for while the mother ran into a copse of wood near by and francis attempted to secrete herself behind a staircase the former seized her little brother the youngest above mentioned and ran off in the direction of the fort true she could not make rapid progress for she clung to the child and not even the pursuit of the savages could induce her to drop her charge the indians did not pursue her far and laughed heartily at the panic of the little girl while they could not but admire her resolution allowing her to make her escape they returned to the house and after helping themselves to such articles as they chose prepared to depart the mother seems to have been unobserved by them although with a yearning bosom she had so disposed of herself that while she was screened from observation she could notice all that occurred but judge of her feelings at the moment when they were about to depart as she saw her little francis taken from her hiding-place and preparations made to carry her away into captivity the sight was too much for maternal tenderness to endure rushing from her place of concealment she threw herself upon her knees at the feet of the captors and with the most earnest entreaties pleaded for the restoration of the child but their bosoms were made of sterner stuff than to yield even to the most eloquent and affectionate entreaties of a mother and with characteristic stoicism they prepared to depart deaf alike to the cries of the mother and the shrieks of the child francis was slung over the shoulder of a stalwart indian with as much indifference as though she were a slaughtered fawn the long lingering look which the mother gave to her child as her captors disappeared in the forest was the last glimpse of her sweet features that she ever had but the vision was for many a long year ever present to her fancy as the indian threw the child over his shoulder her hair fell over her face 
and the mother could never forget how the tears streamed down her cheeks when she brushed it away as if to catch a last sad look of the mother from whom, her little arms outstretched, she implored assistance in vain. These events cast a shadow over the remaining years of Mrs. Slocum. She lived to see many bright and sunny days in that beautiful valley. Bright and sunny, alas, to her no longer. She mourned for the lost one, of whom no tidings, at least during her pilgrimage, could be obtained. After her sons grew up, the youngest of whom, by the way, was born but a few months subsequent to the events already narrated, obedient to the charge of their mother, the most unwearied efforts were made to ascertain what had been the fate of the lost sister. The forest between the Susquehanna and the Great Lakes, and even the most distant wilds of Canada, were traversed by the brothers in vain nor could any information respecting her be derived from the indians once indeed during an excursion of one of the brothers into the vast wilds of the west a white woman long ago captive came to him in the hopes of finding a brother but after many anxious efforts to discover evidences of relationship the failure was as decisive as it was mutually sad there was yet another kindred occurrence still more painful one of the many hapless females in the Indian country, becoming acquainted with the inquiries prosecuted by the Slocum family, presented herself to Mrs. Slocum, trusting that in her she might find her long-lost mother. Mrs. Slocum was touched by her appearance, and fain would have claimed her. She led the stranger about the house and yards, to see if there were any recollections by which she could be identified as her own lost one but there was nothing written upon the pages of memory to warrant the desired conclusion, and the hapless captive returned in bitter disappointment to her forest home. In process of time these efforts were all relinquished as hopeless. The lost Francis might have fallen beneath the tomahawk, or might have proved too tender a flower for transplantation into the wilderness. Conjecture was baffled, and the mother, with a sad heart, sank into the grave, as did also the father, believing with the Hebrew patriarch that the child was not. Long years passed away, and the memory of little Francis was forgotten, save by two brothers and a sister, who, though advanced in the vale of life, could not forget the family tradition of the lost one. Indeed, it had been the dying charge of their mother that they must never relinquish their exertions to discover Francis. Fifty years and more had passed since the disappearance of little Frances, when news came to the surviving members of bereaved family that she was still alive. She had been adopted into the tribe of the Miami Indians, and was passing her days as a squaw in the lodges of that people. The two surviving brothers and their sister undertook a journey to see, and if possible, to reclaim the long-lost Frances. Accompanied by an interpreter, whom they had engaged in the Indian country, they reached at last the designated place, and found their sister. But alas, how changed! Instead of the fair-haired and laughing girl, the picture yet living in their imagination, they found her an aged and thoroughbred squaw in everything but complexion. She was sitting when they entered her lodge, composed of two large log-houses connected by a shed, with her two daughters— the one about twenty-three years old, and the other about thirty-three, and three or four pretty grandchildren. The closing hours of the journey had been made in perfect silence, deep thoughts struggling in the bosoms of all. On entering the lodge, the first exclamation of one of the brothers was, "'Oh, God, is that my sister?' 
a moment afterward, and the sight of her thumb, disfigured in childhood, left no doubt as to her identity. The following colloquy, conducted through the interpreter, ensued. What was your name when a child? I do not recollect. What do you remember? My father, my mother, the long river, the staircase under which I hid when they came. How came you to lose your thumbnail? My brother hammered it off a long time ago, when I was a very little girl at my father's house. Do you know how many brothers and sisters you had? She then mentioned them, and in the order of their ages. Would you know your name if you should hear it repeated? It is a long time since, and perhaps I should not. Was it Francis? At once a smile played upon her features, and for a moment there seemed to pass over the face what might be called the shadow of an emotion, as she answered, Yes. Other reminiscences were awakened, and the recognition was complete. But how different were the emotions of the parties! The brothers paced the lodge in agitation. The civilized sister was in tears. The other, obedient to the affected stoicism of her adopted race, was as cold, unmoved, and passionless as marble. The brothers and sister returned unable, after urgent and loving entreaties, to win back their tawny sister from her wilds. Her Indian husband and children were there. There was the free, open forest, and she clung to these. And yet the love of her kinsfolk for her, and hers for them, was not quenched. Transporting ourselves far from the beautiful valley of Wyoming, where the grief-stricken mother will wake never more to the consciousness of the loss of her sweet Francis, we stand on the prairies of Kansas. The time is 1856. One of the settlers who, with his wife, was seeking to build up a community in the turmoil, which then made that beautiful region such dangerous ground, has met his death at the hands of a rival faction. We enter the widow's desolated home, a shelter rather than a house, with but two wretched rooms, it stands alone upon the prairie. The darkness of a stormy winter's evening was gathering over the snow-clad slopes of the wide, bare prairie, as, in company with a sympathizing friend, we enter that lonely dwelling. In the scantily furnished apartment into which we are shown, two or three women and as many children are crowding around a stove, for the night is bitter cold and even the large wood fire scarcely heated a space so thinly walled. Behind a heavy pine table, on which stands a flickering tallow candle, and leaning against a half-curtained window, on which the sleet and winter's blast beat drearily, sits a woman of some forty years of age, clad in a dress of dark, coarse stuff, resting her head on her hand, and seeming unmindful of all about her. She was the widow of Thomas W. Barber, one of the victims of the Kansas War. The attenuated hand supporting the aching head, and half-shielding the tear-dimmed eyes, the silent drops trickling down the wasted cheeks, told but too well the sad story. "'They have left me,' she cried, "'a poor forsaken creature, to mourn all my days. Oh, my husband, my husband, they have taken from me all that I hold dear, one that I loved better than I loved my own life.' Thomas W. Barber was a careful and painstaking farmer, a kind neighbor, and an inoffensive, amiable man. His untimely taking off was indeed a sad loss to the community at large, but how much more to his wife! She had loved him with a love that amounted to idolatry. 
When he was returning from his daily toil, she would go forth to meet him. When absent from home, if his stay was prolonged, she would pass the whole night in tears. And when ill, she would hang over his bed like a mother over her child. With a presentiment of evil, when he left his home for the last time, after exhausting every argument to prevent him from going, she had said to him, "'Oh, Thomas, if you should be shot, I shall be left all alone, with no child and nothing in the wide world to fill your place.' This was their last parting. The intelligence of his death was kept in mercy from her, through the kindness of friends, who hoped to break it to her gently. This thoughtful and sympathetic purpose was marred by the unthinking act of a young man, who had been sent with a carriage to convey her to the hotel where her husband's body lay. As he rode up he shouted, "'Thomas Barber is killed!' His widow half caught the dreadful words, and rushing to the door cried, "'Oh, God, what do I hear?' Seeing the mournful and sympathetic faces of the bystanders, she knew the truth and filled the house with her shrieks. When they brought her into the apartment where her husband lay, she threw herself upon his corpse, and kissing the dead man's face, called down imprecations on the heads of those who had bereaved her of all she held dear. The prairies of the great west resemble the ocean in more respects than in their level vastness, and the travelers who pass over them are like mariners who guide themselves only by the constellations and the great luminaries of heaven. The trail of the emigrant, like the track of the ship, is often uncrossed for days by others who are voyaging over this mighty expanse. Distance becomes delusive, and after journeying for days, and failing to reach the foothills of the mountains, whose peaks have shone to his eyes in so many morning suns, the tired emigrant is tempted by the abounding richness of the country to pause. He is one hundred miles from the nearest settlement. Beside a stream he builds his cabin. He is like a voyager, whose ship has been burned, leaving him in a strange land which he must conquer or die. Such was the situation of that household on the prairie of Illinois, concerning whom is told a story full of mournful pathos. We should note, in passing on our story, one of the dangers to which prairie dwellers are exposed. They live two or three months every year in a magazine of combustibles. One of the peculiarities of the climate in those regions is the dryness of its summers and autumns. A drought often commences in August, which, with the exception of a few showers towards the close of that month, continues, with little interruption, throughout the full season. The immense mass of vegetation, with which the fertile soil loads itself during the summer, is suddenly withered, and the whole earth is covered with combustible materials. A single spark of fire falling anywhere upon these plains at such a time instantly kindles a blaze that spreads on every side, and continues its destructive course as long as it finds fuel, these fires sweeping on with a rapidity which renders it hazardous even to fly before them. The flames often extend across a wide prairie and advance in a long line. No sight can be more sublime than to behold at night a stream of fire several miles in breadth advancing across these plains, leaving behind it a black cloud of smoke, and throwing before it a vivid glare which lights up the whole landscape with the brilliancy of noonday. A roaring and crackling sound is heard like the rushing of the hurricane. The flame, which in general rises to the height of about twenty feet, 
is seen sinking and darting upward in spires, precisely as the waves dash against each other. And as the spray flies up into the air, the whole appearance is often that of a boiling and flaming sea violently agitated. Woe to the farmer whose ripe cornfield extends into the prairie, and who has carelessly suffered the tall grass to grow in contact with his fences. The whole labor of a year is swept away in a few hours. More than sixty years since, and before the beautiful wild gardens of Illinois had been tilled by the hand of the white man, an emigrant with his family came thither from the east, in search of a spot whereon to make his home. One bright spring day, his white-topped wagon entered a prairie, richer in its verdure, and more brilliant in its flowers, than any that had yet met his eyes. At nightfall it halted beside a clump of trees, not far from a creek. On this site a log cabin soon rose, and sent its smoke curling through the overhanging boughs. The only neighbors of the pioneers were the rambling Indians. Their habitation was the center of a vast circle not dwelt in, and rarely even crossed by white settlers. Oxen, cows, and a dog were their only domestic animals. For many months after their cabin was built, they depended on wild game and fruits for subsistence. The rifle of the father, and traps set by the boys, brought them an abundant supply of meat. The wife and mother wrought patiently for those she loved. Her busy hands kept a well-ordered house by day, and at night she plied the needle to repair the wardrobe of her little household band. It was already growing scanty, and materials to replace it could only be procured at a distance, and means to procure it were limited. Patching and darning until their garments were beyond repair, she then supplied their place with skins stripped from the deer which the father had shot. Far into the night, by the flickering light of a single candle, this gentle housewife plied her busy care, while her husband, worn out with his day's work, and her children, tired by their rambles, were slumbering in the single chamber of the cabin. October came, and a journey to the nearest settlement for winter goods and stores must be made. After due preparation the father and his eldest son start in the emigrant wagon, and expected to be absent many days, during which the mother and her children, with only the dog for their protection, looked hourly forth upon the now frost-embrowned prairie, and fondly hoped for their return. Day after day passed, and no sign of life was visible upon the plain, save the deer bounding over the sur herbage, or the wolf loping stealthily against the wind which bore the scent of his prey. A rising haze began to envelop the landscape, betokening the approach of the Indian summer. The melancholy days had come, the saddest of the year, and the desolation of nature found an answering mood in the soul of that lone woman. One day she was visited by a party of Indian warriors, and from them she learned that there was a war between the tribes through whose country the journey of her husband lay. A boding fear for his safety took possession of her, and after the warriors had partaken of her hospitality and departed, and night came, she laid her little ones in their bed, and sat for hours on the threshold of the cabin door, looking out through the darkness, and praying silently for the return of her loved ones. The wind was rising, and driving across the sky black masses of clouds, which looked like misshapen specters of evil. The blast whistled through the leafless trees, and howled round the cabin. Hours passed, and still the sorrowful wife and mother sat gazing into the gloom, as if her eyes would pierce it, and lighten on the wished-for object. But what is that strange light 
which far to the north gleams on the blackened sky. It was not the lightning's flash, for it was a steady, brightening glow. It was not the weird flash of the aurora borealis, but a redder and more lurid sheen. Nor was it the harbinger of the rising sun which lit that northern sky. From a tinge it brightens to a gleam, and deepened at last into a broad glare. That lonely heart was overwhelmed with the dreadful truth. The prairie is on fire. Often had they talked of prairie fires as a spectacle of grandeur. But never had she dreamed of the red demon as an enemy to be encountered in that dreadful solitude. Her heart sank within her as she saw the danger leaping toward her, like some fiery and maddened racehorse. Was there no escape? Her children were sweetly sleeping, and the faithful dog, her only guardian, was gazing, as if with mute sympathy, into her face. Within an hour she calculates the conflagration will be at her very door. All around her is one dry ocean of combustibles. She cannot reach the treetops, and if she could, to cling there would be impossible, amid those towering flames. The elements seemed to grow madder as the fire approached. Fiercer blew the blast, intermitting for a moment only to gather fresh potency and mingle its own strength with that of the flames. She still had a faint hope that a creek a few miles away would be a barrier over which the blaze could not leap. She saw by the broad light which made even the distant prairie like noonday, the tops of the trees that fringed the creek, but for a few moments, and then they were swallowed up in that crimson furnace. Alas, the stream had been crossed by the resistless flames, and her last hope died away. Bewildered and half-stupefied by the terrors of her situation, she had not yet wakened her children. But now no time was to be lost. Already in imagination she felt the hot breath of her relentless foe. It was with much difficulty that she awoke them, and aroused them to a sense of their awful danger. Hastily dressing them, she encircled them in her arms, and kissed and fondled them, as if for a last farewell. Now for the first time she missed the dog, the faithful companion and guardian of her solitude, and on whose aid she still counted in the hour of supreme peril. She called him loudly, but in vain. Turning her face northward, she saw one unbroken line of flame as far as the eye could reach, and forcing its way towards her, like an infuriated demon, roaring, crackling, sending up columns of dun-colored smoke as it tore along over the plain. A few minutes more and her fate would be decided. Falling on her knees, she poured out her heart in prayer, supplicating for mercy, and commending herself and her helpless babes to Almighty God. As she rose calmed and stayed by that fervent supplication, a low, wistful bark fell on her ear. The dog came bounding to her side, seizing her by the dress as if he would drag her from the spot. He leaped away from her, barking and whining, looking back towards her as he ran. Following him a few steps and seeing nothing, she returned and resumed her seat, awaiting death beside her children. Again the dog returned, pawing, whining, howling, and trying in every way to attract her attention. What could he mean? Then for the first time flashed upon her the thought which had already occurred to the sagacious instinct of the dumb brute. The ploughed field, yes, there alone was hope of safety. Clasping the two youngest children with one arm, she almost dragged the eldest boy as she fled along the trodden path, the dog going before them, showing every token of delight. The fire was at their heels, and its hot breath almost scorched their clothes as they ran. 
they gained the herbless ploughed field and took their station in its centre just as the flames darted round on each side of them the exhausted mother faint with the sudden deliverance dropped on the ground among her helpless babes father of mercies what an escape in a few moments the flames attacked the haystack which was but a morsel to its fury and then seizing the house devoured it more slowly while the great volume of the fire swept around over the plain long did the light of the burning home blight the eye of the lone woman after the flames had done their worst on the prairie around her and gone on bearing ruin and devastation to the southern plains and groves the vigils and the terrors of that fearful night wrought their work on the lonely woman and she sank into a trance-like slumber upon the naked earth with her babes nestling in her lap and the dog her noble guardian crouching at her feet she awoke with the first light of the morning to the terrible realities from which for a few brief hours she had had a blessed oblivion she arose as from a dream and cast a dazed look southward over a charred and blackened expanse stretching to the horizon over which the smoke was hanging like a pall turning away stunned by the fearful recollection her eyes fell upon the smouldering ruins of her once happy home she tottered with her chilled and hungry children towards the heap of smoking rafters and still glowing embers of the cabin with which the morning breezes were toying as in merry pastime and sat down upon a mound which stood before what had once been the door here at least was warmth but whither should she go for shelter and food there was no house within forty miles and the cruel flames had spared neither grain nor meat there was no shelter but the canopy of heaven and no food but roots and half-burned nuts wandering hither and thither under the charred and leafless trees she picked up with her numb and nerveless fingers the relics of the autumn nuts or feebly dug in the frost-stiffened ground for roots but these were rare here and there she found a nut shielded by a decayed log and the edible roots were almost hidden by the ashes of the grass she returned to the fire around which her innocent children had begun to frolic with childlike thoughtlessness the coarse morsels which she gave them seemed for the moment to quiet their cravings and the strange sight of their home in ruins diverted their minds the mother saw with joy that they were amusing themselves with merry games and had no part in her bitter sorrows and fears long and earnestly did she bend her eyes on the wide black plains to see if she could discern the white-topped wagon moving over that dark expanse noon came and passed but brought not the sight for which she yearned only the brown deer gambling and the prairie hen wheeling her flight over the scorched waste night came with its cold its darkness its hunger its dreadful solitude the chilled and shelterless woman sat with the heads of her sleeping children pillowed in her lap and listened to the howling of the starved wolves the dog her only guardian she had discovered a few ground nuts which she had divided among the children reserving none for herself she had stripped off nearly all her clothing in order to wrap them up warmly against the frosty air and with pleasant words while her head was bursting she had soothed them to sleep beside the burning pile and there through the watches of the long night she gazed fondly at them and prayed to the father of mercies that they at least might be spared the night was dark beyond the circle of the burning embers nothing could be discerned at intervals her blood was curdled by the long mournful howl of the gaunt gray wolf calling his companions to their prey 
The cold wind whistled around her thinly clad frame, and chilled it to the core. As the night grew stiller, a drowsiness against which she contended in vain overcame her. Her eyelids drooped, her shivering body swayed to and fro, until by the tumbling down of the embers she was again aroused, and would brace herself for another hour's vigil. At last the darkness became profoundly silent, and even the wind ceased to whisper. The nocturnal marauders stole away, and night held her undisputed reign. Then came a heavy, dreamless sleep, and overpowered the frame of the watcher, chilled as it was, and faint with hunger, and worn with fatigue and vigils. She curled her shivering limbs around her loved ones, and became oblivious to all. It was the cry of her babes that waked her from slumber. The fire was slowly dying. The sun was looking down coldly from the leaden sky. Slowly his beams were obscured by dark, sullen masses of vapor, which at last curtained the whole heavens. Rain. When she sat watching in the darkness a few hours before, she thought nothing could make her condition worse. But an impending rainstorm, which thirty-six hours before would have been hailed as merciful and saving, would now only aggravate their situation. Darker and darker grew the sky. She must hasten for food ere the clouds should burst. Her limbs were stiff with cold, her sight was dim, and her brain reeled as she rose to her feet and tottered to the grove to search for sustenance to keep her wailing babies alive. Her own desire for food was gone, but all exhausted as she was, she could not resist the pleadings of the loved ones who hung upon her garments and begged for food. Gleaning a few more coarse morsels on the ground so often searched, she tottered back to the spot, which still seemed home, though naught of home was there. Strange, racking pains wrung her wasted body, and sinking down beside her children, she felt as if her last hour had come. Yes, she would perish there beside those consecrated ashes with her little ones around her. A drizzling rain was falling faster and faster. The fire was dying, and she pushed the brands together, and gathered her trembling babes about her knees, and between the periods of her agony told them not to forget their mamma, nor how they had lost her. She gave the eldest boy many tender messages to carry to her husband and to her firstborn. With wondering and tearful face he promised to do as she desired, but begged her to tell him where she would be when his father came, and whether his little brother would go with her and leave him all alone. The rain poured down mercilessly, and chilly blew the blast. The embers hissed and blackened, and shed no more warmth on the suffering group. Keener and heavier grew the mother's pangs, and there, beside the smoking ruins of her home, prone on the drenched soil, with a pitiless sky bending above her, her helpless children wailing around her writhing form, the hapless woman gave birth to a little babe, whose eyes were never opened to the desolation of its natal home. Unconscious alike to the cries of the terror-stricken children and of the moaning caresses of her dumb friend, that poor mother's eyes were only opened on the dreadful scene when day was far advanced. Through the cold rain, still pouring steadily down, the twilight seemed to her faint eyes to be creeping over the earth. Sweet sounds were ringing in her ears. These were but dreams that deluded her weakened mind and senses. She strove to rise, but fell back, and again relapsed into insensibility. Once again her eyes opened. This time it was no illusion. The eldest of the little watchers was shouting in her ear, "'Mother, I see father's wagon.' There it was, close at hand. 
All day it had been slowly moving across the blackened prairie. The turf had been softened by the rain, and the last few miles had been inconceivably tedious. The charred surface of the plain had filled the heart of both father and son with terror, which increased as they advanced. When they were within a mile of the spot where the cabin stood, and could see no house, they both abandoned the wagon, and leaving the animals to follow as they chose. They flew shouting loudly as they sped on till they stood over the perishing group. They could not for the moment comprehend the dreadful calamity, but stared at the wasted faces of the children, the infant corpse, the dying wife, the desolate home. Cursing the day that he had been lured by the festal beauty of those prairies, the father lifted the dying woman in his arms, gazed with an agonized face upon her glassy eyes, and felt the faint fluttering in her breast that foretold the last and worst that could befall him. Slowly, word by word, with weep, sepulchral voice, she told the dreadful story. He slipped off his outer garments and wrapped them around her, and wiping off the raindrops from her face, drew her to his heart. But storm or shelter was all the same to her now, and the death-damp on her brow was colder than the pelting shower. He accused himself of her cruel murder, and wildly prayed her forgiveness. From these accusations she vindicated him, besought him not to grieve for her, and with many prayers for her dear children and their father, she resigned her breath with the parting light of that sad autumnal day. After two days and nights of weeping and watching, he laid her remains deep down below the prairie sod, beside the home which she had loved and made bright by her presence. End of chapter 11